God had started this journey in me where I knew that there was a lot of stigma attached to things like bipolar or PTSD. While I did feel some shame, I almost felt like a relentless like uh, spirit to say, like, I will not be part of the church that hides this. I'm going to say this. This is my truth. This is my story. And, you know, it is through vulnerability that I think people grow and connect and are able to be in true community and authenticity. On today's episode, we have Scott and Candace Fortenberry. They serve a church plant in Jackson, Mississippi, and they are talking about the issue of mental health, which we have not touched yet on the glass house. And it is a fascinating episode. I was mesmerized by this conversation, largely because I come from a mental health story. Both of my parents walked through severe mental illness in my 20s, and it has been uh, a journey and a lot of brokenness and a lot of struggle and loneliness through all that. And so as they were talking today, I found myself wanting to like call them back and ask more questions about, so, so what does it mean to deal with mental health? And what does it mean to deal with mental health challenges in the ministry? Because we have a lot of folks who serve on churches who listen to this podcast who have this in their family and they're ashamed to talk about it because it might disqualify them from ministry. Well, I I think a hard part of our marriage is that because that's in your past and I think there's some shame in there. When I have ever even challenged you to say, hey, you know, this is very genetic. They're both, you know, clinically institutionalized. Do you feel okay? I mean, you've been very upset with me about that before. Because I feel like such a lousy Christian for having lows. Yeah, but they say that mental health isn't a character issue or a faith issue. I love when she said that. I felt a little bit set free Mm -hmm. in that. I love when Candace said, I will not be a part of the church that hides this in reference to bipolar. And I thought that was so interesting. So, I mean, my own personal story, I don't know anyone with bipolar. And so I was just intrigued by everything she said. And I loved your reference, Ben, to the truth be told. If we all were able to tell some of our story as freely as she told, I mean, I think the church would be so much healthier of a of a place for people, like a safe place. I mean, they use that word safe. And I feel like sometimes the church isn't safe. I can understand why people are hesitant to even use terms like mental health. Uh, uh, sometimes we only believe what we see on TV or we think about things in caricatures. When we moved out to Colorado, planted church, and began talking to non-believing people on our street about Christianity, I was surprising to me how many of them thought it was about handling snakes and things they'd seen on TV. So it made me want to hide the fact that I was a Christian because they weren't going to understand it. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, when you tell someone that you have bipolar disorder, I can only imagine the eyebrows that are raised because they just don't understand it. They did not had any education in it. So they only think of things in the extreme. So of course people are hiding it. Well, and she also mentioned that going to group therapy was one of the healthiest things she did. And she said, I sat in a circle with people who didn't pretend, which is a really strong statement. And I think also very truthful. And so, I mean, it, she's part of a church. She's a pastor's wife and she felt freedom going to an offsite group of, of believers and non-believers together who aren't pretending. And I just thought that was a great challenge Mm -hmm. to our churches of just stop pretending. I mean, that is where the growth happens is when we get truthful with each other. Scott's comments about wearing a shield took me back to, I think episode one 
when I described the moment I had with a counselor into which I answered his questions with every biblical answer possible, and he said, I feel really lonely with you right now. What he was speaking to is that I was doing a really good job of avoiding the hard parts of the conversation, which pastors can be masterful in doing. And he challenged me today of just, am I a safe person for you? Am I a safe person for other people who are broken? Or do they think I'm going to try to shove some kind of solution on them and shortcut their own healing? I think this conversation is going to set a lot of people free, and I'm excited to get into it. So welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Thanks. We're glad to be here. Well, Lindley and I are interested. We have mutual friends. They've been telling us all about you guys. And we wanted to just start by saying, tell us a little of your story and some of the ups and downs you've been through over these last years. Currently, we are planting a church or have planted a church that will celebrate its fifth birthday in January. Um, So we're in inner city Jackson. And um, a lot of things that we've learned and that have happened to us in our uh, mental health journey is a part of why and what we're doing here at Soul City. Mm-hmm. So Candace will tell us a little bit more about how we got here and kind of what led us to this journey starting in, in 2014. Yeah, so 2014, um, that's like the epic year in our family. Um, looking back at it now, I thought that at the time it would be the destruction of everything. I didn't realize that God was building a new foundation. Mm. Um, so to go back to that time, basically the, the stress of the present mixed with the traumas of the past and created a bit of a hurricane. And so I had some 30 something seizures in a few days time span. And so, um, in the hospital, of course, I don't remember any of this, Scott, uh, could have testified to most of this, but the doctor said, you know, this is not epilepsy. This is trauma-based um, psychosomatic seizures. Mm-hmm. And so we that led to inpatient at a psych hospital um, and ECT treatments and um, all sorts of therapies that would go on there. And then from one hospital to the next hospital to the next hospital, uh, basically, they we were on a journey where they started to give medication that wasn't helpful for me. They didn't realize I had bipolar disorder. And they were giving me medicine for things that, uh, antidepressants alone, that trip things up with people with bipolar disorder. So I ended up having to go into an inpatient in New Orleans, and the doctor there uh he was, he was kind of an irritable person, but I remember like sitting there and he said, well, we're going to try lithium. And I immediately got defensive and said, I'm not bipolar. Like I don't have bipolar. And um, he said, well, and he kind of, I think he lied to me because he said, you know, well, we'll sometimes this works for other things too, which is not true. <laughs> so anyway, I got on and within three days, I was way more grounded and more myself and, and thinking uh, more clearly. And so came home from New Orleans, entered an outpatient treatment center that I worked at hard, hard, hard work for about six to seven months. And, um, yeah, so from that point, we moved to St. Petersburg, Florida, for an extended vacation, we call it, for about 14 months. Moved back, and I re-entered treatment, uh, basically dealing with the, the 
traumas of the past and also the bipolar illness itself. Wow. Were you in a church at that point? And do you have children or anything like that? Like, are you dealing with? <laughs> oh, yes. my goodness. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> yes. At that point, we were pastoring um, a, a county seat church. So 250, 300 people on Sunday morning. Um, you know, it was the uh, doctors and lawyers and uh, it was the the well-to-do of the community was our congregation at the time. Mm-hmm. And honestly, all this is happening and I didn't know what to do. She didn't know what to do. And we honestly didn't know what was happening. The words that the doctors are telling me, you know, they're coming in and saying she's having psychosogenic seizures. And I'm going, no, they're real. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching them. They're, you know, they're not just in her mind. She's really having them. And um, I, I didn't, I had no frame of reference um, to understand what was happening. And honestly, I had some people reaching out to me saying, you need community right now. And I didn't even, I didn't even, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know, I didn't know how to be open and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I, I had really, I had been trained that you don't share these things with people, that it was my job as the husband and protector and father and pastor to not let people in, but to lead well in spite of anything happening at my house. Wow. I mean, so your kids, you had previously not been sick up until this 2014, this episode. And so, I mean, are they like, mom, what's going on with mom? And yeah, yeah. So we have, we have five children. They were very young at that point. I think the youngest was two and the oldest was nine. Yeah. About that. And so they they did not know it was it's honestly it's a traumatic year for them because yeah. they didn't understand what was happening with me and mom was here one day and then mom went away mm-hmm. for months and so um, for months meaning she was gone for several weeks and would come back and then that didn't work we'd go back so I mean yeah. really from from April to the end of July it was in and out of different hospitals trying mm-hmm. to figure out what's happening with. About two weeks gone, two weeks should be home, two weeks gone. And I mean, it was tumultuous. And I didn't do a good job explaining to the kids, but I didn't know what to explain. Well, how do you explain to young kids about a mental disorder? I mean, you know, they don't understand that when they can't see something broken or whatever. That's right. That's right. right. Scott, question, because I'm I'm thinking through the, the mind of a pastor right now. Maybe his wife's going through something similar. He doesn't know who to talk to. As you look back on that time, you said you you didn't know how to experience a community. What what did you learn? Like, what would you say to someone who's going through it now? Oh man, I learned a ton. If I could have it to do other over again, um, there were, there were even a handful of men in the church that I should have been saying every step of the way. Here's what's happening. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm scared of. I mean, yeah. honestly, I I, I, did, I was afraid, but I didn't even know how to express those fears. Mm. I was. I felt really, really trapped, and I felt really, really alone. Um, I'll never forget Ben Derrick coming by the hospital, um, and he's saying, "I go to your church, but I'm not. A, I'm not a normal church member." He, I remember him saying that. He's like, "Dude, you can tell me what's going on." And I remember looking at him, going, "I'm good, man. I got it all. It's, yeah. You know, I got this. This, you know, God's prepared. God's in control." And I used all of those those good Christian feel good terms yeah. that that weren't delivering and honestly for me weren't true at the moment. Um, Mm. I was lying to myself. Did you feel overpoweringly alone through that? Did you have anybody that was walking with you? So I, uh, 
to some extent, I have some moments, um, uh, and I'll share about those moments. Um, I was driving up to Memphis. It was about a three-hour drive, and um, she was in the hospital. I was going to check on her. I'm going to check on her with every anticipation. I had called a meeting with the, the doctors that were seeing her, and I had every anticipation of those doctors telling me that this is it. Candace will never be, quote, unquote, normal again. Uh, and man, I was, I, I was crying. I remember getting on I-55 and just bawling my eyes out. And um, I got a random phone call from Andrew Mann in New York City. He was uh, a church planner up there. He had no idea what was going on. Mm. He just called and said, hey, do you remember when you were here this summer? And I said, yeah. He said, um, the guy you gave your shirt to in the neighborhood, I just wanted you to know we're going to baptize him Sunday. And so we kind of talked about that, I hung up the phone, and immediately um, my dad called, and I was talking to him, and I did, I was able to share with him, uh, but I, it just still wasn't all the intimacy and the details of what was happening in my life, uh, but it was, it was the, that I'm going to see Candace, I don't know what to do, we're struggling, those kinds of details, and he hung up the phone and called my brother, and then my brother called right after that. So it was a third phone call back to back to back. And my my brother, golly, my brother said, um, Dad just called and said, Scott need, needs you. He needs your brother. And um, those three phone calls back to back to back was a huge God moment of like, and I don't know how else to say it other than I felt like God say, I see you. Mm-hmm. I had felt so unseen. I had felt so alone. And and those three phone calls was that God wink of, I see you, Scott. And um, that kind of opened the door when we got, <laughs> I remember getting to Memphis and looking at the doctor. And I think I asked, is, is this it? Is this the new Candace? And <laughs> I remember him laughing at me. <laughs> and he literally laughed and said, Son, she's going to be fine. She, she, mm-hmm. We, we got to get some things straight, but th- this is not the new normal. Mm-hmm. And just in those moments, you just realize, um, even when I'm an idiot and don't know how to open up, that God supernaturally steps in and opens doors to say, I'm here and I'm with you. Um, I, I look back at it and go, I should have looked at Ben Derrick and gone, here's, here's what's going on. I'm scared. I don't know what to do with my kids. Are, are we going to be okay? Right. What is, you know, all of those questions. In that, I think I felt the need to be strong for her. Yeah. I remember telling her all the way through the journey, Candace, I'm not embarrassed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. I'll still look at her. Candace, I'm not, I, I'm not embarrassed of our story. I'm not embarrassed of what's happened. In fact, whenever you're comfortable I'll shout this from the, the mountaintop. I'll go on the Lifeway podcast and we'll talk about it. Because um, I knew that that was going to be vitally important for her. I didn't understand what was happening inside of me. Wow. Um, I was, I was, I was, I honestly, I was scared of what was happening in me. Yeah. Um, you're talking about this happening in 2014. I think even in the last nine years, mental health has become so much more talked about. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I just see some disorders that have progressed to more understanding. Like we have a child who has celiac. Well, nine years ago, people didn't even know what that is. And right. so nine years ago, when people hear bipolar, I, I imagine yeah. there's some shame attached to that. 
Yeah, bipolar is a trigger word for sure. Yes, and so I mean, tell me your side of the story as you're going through this. I mean, we he- heard from Scott, but I mean, what are you processing through this? Like, I've got five kids. I'm embarrassed. You know, how did this happen? Kind of thing. The the week before the seizures happened, I had um, come to grips with the fact that there was intense traumas in my past, mm. and so. Um, there's a house that traumas had happened in in, a, in South Jackson. And so I thought to myself, well, I'll drive down there mm-hmm. and I will face that house and then it'll go away. Mm-hmm. And so I, I drove down, um, got to the house that had been abandoned and I was able to walk the perimeter of the home. And I noticed, I just prayed the whole time. I looked in my window where traumas had occurred and I thought, okay, this is it. And as I walked away, I noticed the foundation had changed. Like they were laying a new foundation. And I'm, I felt like in my spirit, the Holy Spirit say, same house, new foundation, same girl, new foundation. And so that the seizures happened the next day. Um, I say that because god had started this journey in me where i knew that there was a lot of um stigma attached to things like bipolar or ptsd and um while i did feel some shame i almost felt like a relentless like uh spirit to say like i will not be part of the church that hides this like i'm gonna i'm gonna say this this is my truth this is my story and, you know, but it's through vulnerability that I think people grow and connect and are able to be in true community and authenticity. I love the way you said that. I just wrote that down, what you just said. I will That's not really be a part good. of the church that hides this. That's so good. I'll never forget the Sunday that she said, um, Scott, you can tell, go, go for it. It was in July. And, um, I got to the end of the sermon just before giving the invitation and I spelled it all out. Here's where we've been. Here's how many hospitals we've been through. Here's what's going on. And I just went boom, 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 boom. And, um, at the at the end of the service, you know, you, I'm standing at the back of the door greeting everybody, and they tell me what a great job I did. You know, don't don't you love those times, Ben? It's just so <laughs> feels so plastic. But I'll never forget that day because <laughs> that day, about 25 people walked by me and said, "Hey, such and such happened to me. Hmm. Hey, my mom went through. Hey, I watched my sister." Hey, I'm having these thoughts now Absolutely. and I'm not sure what to do. Mm-hmm. And it was it was like walls just you know, it was the coat and tie community all of a sudden that was broken, real, and very connectable and relatable. It makes me think of that Matthew West song, Truth Be Told. Have you heard that song? Oh yeah. Yeah, he talks about how the church is supposed to be a place where people are honest, but mm-hmm. they're not. And I do think that honesty is a culture. Uh, it's part of a culture, and culture is set by leaders at the top. And so for someone at the top or in the pulpit to say, my, my wife and I are going through a journey with mental health, it gives everybody else in the room permission to be okay with their own mental health struggles or someone that they love. So I'm really proud of you guys for mm-hmm. 
being ambassadors for this tribe of people that this is, this is part of their story. Nobody signs up for this, by the way. Nobody hopes that this is part of their story. Can you, I mean, can you tell us a little bit of what bipolar, what it looks like, how it's diagnosed, yeah. all that kind of stuff? Because for someone who's listening, sure. who's like, I'm, I'm on a journey myself and, and don't know what's going on. Yeah, so bipolar, I mean, it's an ugly beast. Um, I always say that bipolar lies to you. It lies to you when you're up and it lies to you when you're down. Mm. Um, it makes you believe that you're invincible when you're up, and it makes you believe that you'll never get out of the pit when you're down. Wow. And so one of the tales of bipolar, and there's several different levels of bipolar, um, but one of the things that you can count on is that there's cycles. And so when someone, like, looking back now, I can get, I can see the, these cycles that were building in my life over and over. And so... Um, yeah, but in the throes of the depression or the throes of the mania, you can't, it blinds you a bit. And so I would say to someone who's struggling with any type of type of cyclical depression or mania, um, they usually piggyback off each other, that rely on your community, as scary as it is, have some safe people that can say, hey, I see this. I see you going up. I see you coming down. What do we need to do? Can you and, describe uh, what mania looks like? Like, what is mania? Sure. So, for me, the my true my true manic state happened when I was on antidepressants without a mood stabilizer, which okay. is a big trigger for bipolar. Um, it can set it off really quickly if if someone has it and they don't know, and they just get on antidepressants, they end up going manic, and then a whole host of problems happened, which is what happened to me. Um, but in my normal, normal mania, I guess you could <laughs> say that um, that it comes in waves like I have all this energy and I can do all these projects and I can get all this stuff done and I feel great, like I finally feel good. So like if Scott were to say, hey, I see this, I might go, well, yeah, but I'm just feeling good because I'm eating better and I'm exercising. Well, I'm eating better and I'm exercising because uh, and starting to be manic. So I get all this energy to go do all these things. Um, and it's it kind of feeds on itself. You know, the more that you uh, play into it, the, more, the greater the mania grows. And the higher things go, the lower they fall. Yeah. So there, there is a direct correlation. Our house gets spotless during mania. Because um, <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden, it's almost painted. It's painted. It's almost. So Scott, if she's like, painting the house, you go. You start getting yeah. nervous. Yeah, it's yeah. like whoa, whoa. You know, she'll she'll sign up for a marathon. Yeah, like I'm ready. Let's go. Well, I can I can do a marathon. I was like, you haven't been running. Yeah, but I can do it. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it, and she's convinced of it. Ended up running and I, multiple marathons. Uh, as a yeah, but. The higher you go, the lower the fall. Does it happen differently every time? I mean, you never know when it's coming to the low. For me, um, about every four months, every season change, you can pretty much guarantee I'm going to go up. And then wow, the up usually lasts for me about four or five days. Um, high energy, get a lot done, and then the crash comes. And it's the falling down that is the... Um, I think the ugliest part of bipolar 
they call it a mixed episode. It's when you're moving from mania to depression. And you have the energy of mania with the hopelessness of depression. Wow. And so what happens is a lot of that's 99% of the time when bipolar patients that take their life, that take their life in a mixed episode. Um, and which is, it's a sad statistic. So, you know, 17% of people with bipolar commit suicide, 17% and follow, you know, follow through on it. 80% that plan it, 50% attempt it. And so it's a very real serious illness. Um, one that, you know, we take super serious. And my, you know, my, my son also has bipolar disorder He's a teenager, and he's way ahead of where I was at that point. Because um, he's had a mama that's modeled for him. It's okay wow. to get help. It's okay to say um, it's okay to say things aren't right, and I'm not thinking right. When you guys see a manic episode, how do you? What protective measures do you have in your household to know that it's gonna? You're gonna have that mixed episode coming down. Um, one of the measures is medication. We keep that on hand. Like there are certain for me and for Andrew, there are uh, the nine one one meds. You take um, you take extra of something, or you take one more of something when you begin to become manic, so that the the blow of the fall is not so intense. Uh, it's it's really about medicine management. Um, the other thing is being honest and open, yeah. and being being able to say okay, mom, dad, or Scott, or whoever, um, I'm feeling these thoughts. I'm having these thoughts. I feel hopeless, and, um, you know, I feel like I don't want to do this anymore, and I feel like, what's the point? It's, you know, it comes, it comes, and I'll say to Andrew, and I'll say to myself, but it goes. You get out of it. And I'm like, yeah, but for it to come around again. Um, So it's, it, you start that dialogue and that's when I think we pick up for myself and for Andrew, um, a dialogue that says, Hey, these are the red flags on the beaches of bipolar. That's waving saying, okay, the, the down is coming. And this and is we, so interesting. And we move in with, um, I feel like we move in with compassion and understanding and we get to, we get to help. I mean, therapy, psychiatrist god gave us these tools um and i believe he works through them you were talking about the honesty of it um when you guys since you have been very honest about it in the church world i imagine people are fearful of telling people because of the backlash have you guys Mm -hmm. experienced any of that or have it has it honestly been an inroad to connect with people most part it's been an inroad to connect with people but in I've noticed that in situations like maybe the traditional church setting, it's harder to connect in that way. It's like plugging into an outlet that has no electricity with it. It, you know, it's like you're ready to connect, um, but maybe the person isn't able to be vulnerable with you yet. And so one thing I love about us moving into the inner city is that, you know, a lot of our friends and neighbors here, um, they don't hide things. Nothing. (laughs) You know, they're they're open and honest. And when I say, um, usually it is my my story that breaks down the walls. 
when I say, yeah, I have bipolar disorder, and they look at me and say, oh, really? My son does. Yep. And and I'm able wow. to like say, hey, this is this is our thing. This is what God gave me. And, um, you know, God allowed me to have however you want to word it, but God sees me through it, you know. And so it enables me to connect. One of the reoccurring themes on the show has been the mold of the pastor's wife as if there is one. <laughs> and we're realizing more and more that most women who serve as pastor wives don't feel like they fit the mold. Right. I can only imagine how you felt going through your journey of of having hopelessness and thinking, I'm now a detriment to my husband's ministry because right. I'm not stable. And right. pastor's wives are supposed to be stable. How did you overcome that and that sense of, you know, desperate, I'm, I'm not enough for Scott? Community. God allowed me to go to therapy where I had group therapy and I sat around in a circle with people who didn't pretend and I was able to say, here's my story and Mm -hmm. these are the parts of me that I feel like I have to hide. And they accepted me and I thought, this is church. This is what church is supposed to look like. And and so I came home and I told (laughs) Scott and I'm like, this is the way it's supposed to be. And um, that, that sort of gave me a, like a superpower to be able to say, okay, I know there's this mold that I'm supposed to fit, but I think that mold is possibly destructive to people. And I have to be the me that God created me to be. Um, if I don't, I'm walking in disobedience. Wow. Mm. And so I, be- I begin to say, To myself, you know, it's like self, you're going to have to walk in that church and you're going to have to be you and God made you you. And if somebody has a problem with the you that God made, that's them and God. That's not, that's not me and Scott. I often say that I've never been to a conference where a speaker starts by saying, let me tell you the three biggest messes I've made in my life. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's always the formula they figured out that everybody can take home and use in their ministry. But yeah, I, I feel drawn to a person sure. who leads with their weaknesses mm-hmm. and is open about their struggles. Uh, and so when you say you only found a non-pretend, a non-pretending group at group therapy, it makes me sad for the church. Right. Like, what is wrong with the church that we're not able to stop pretending and talk about things like bipolar that are affecting our families? Like what, what do you guys think is going on there? And why did that lead you to plant this church? That so she talked about that. I had through this journey, I had a good friend that I'd served on staff with at churches that ended up coming out as a, um, an alcoholic. And um, as he was going through recovery um, he started taking me to AA groups with him. Wow. And so I'd never had a reason to go to an AA group. You know, I just knew that these are the things that happened. And honestly, as I walked in, I started hearing the things that Candace had been telling me about her group. It was like, nobody in here agrees with any of the bad behaviors that's being talked about, but nobody in here is casting any sort of judgment. They really are all saying, we're with you. We want to help you walk through this and get out of it. And that helped me go, 
that's what we want to have in our church. That that kind of openness and vulnerability. And so you said it, it starts at the top. And I started this podcast by telling you, I was not that. I was not open and I was not vulnerable and I was not willing to or say safe. or safe. Yeah, Candace used to tell me all the time that I wasn't safe. And I was like, what do you mean? I, I love you with all of my heart. Lindley has told me that. I don't get it. Yeah, I still don't get like it. I would look at her and go, I, I, mean, I don't have a frame of reference. I would always tell her, I get off work at 4.30 and I'm home at 4.35. What do you want? I mean, like, how much safer can I be? And she, um, through the journey, I realized what, what she was communicating is that I wasn't even being honest and vulnerable with her. I, I had my pastor shield on all the time. And and so I walked How around with it all together. I went to a group. Um, so I ended up, at, it's a group called Deer Camp. Uh, and we didn't kill any deer and we had no guns there that I, that I was aware of. Um, <laughs> but at this deer camp, I went and it was 40 or 50 men sitting around a campfire and they're all sharing their story. And I remember looking at my buddy, um, uh, and looking at him saying, dude, I am not going to connect in this group. I mean, they were telling all kinds of stuff. And I was like, like I, I'm a pastor. And like, I don't have the big, bad Paul testimony. You know, I have the kind of Timothy testimony where I came to Christ at seven. And, and he goes, just be honest and tell your parts of the story and tell your story. And um, I remember uh, my dad died when I was seven months old. My mom remarried when I was two. They divorced when I was 11. So I started unpacking all of these parts of my life, and I ended up getting emotional. And I remember as soon as I got done, him leaning over going, still don't think you're going to connect. <laughs> he said, your life is as, uh, as much of a disaster as anybody else's. And I just... I. I have learned how to uh, sermonize my story so I can share my story after I got the big red bow on top of it and it's all come together and there's a powerful moment. And so Candace still has to help me with this to go. Don't wait until it's wrapped. Mm -hmm. Let me watch you make the sausage. And so Mm -hmm. um, I have, uh, and my kids will tell you, my wife will tell you, 2018 was a defining moment. You know, it's four years after her deal uh, for me of me going, I I am no longer going to be unsafe. I'm going to be transparent and open and real and vulnerable. And honestly, I've become a better dad. I've become a better mm-hmm. pastor. I've become a better husband. I've become, I, I'm, I'm a better me because actually I'm now an authentic and not, not the guy that feels the pressure to have it together. And this for for me, who maybe is a little further behind Scott, and <laughs> what were the specific things he did or said that made you feel safe? That you begin to say, okay, he's becoming a safe person. Um, one of the things is he, the, probably the biggest thing is he stopped trying to fix it. And, um, mm. you know, there's some things that can't be fixed, uh, not on this earth. And so, you know, when we look at, situations of family of origin issues or traumas or bipolar disorder or whatever, anxiety, whatever it may be. Um, Scott's a very logical thinker. And so that's great. I mean, I think we need those people. Um, he's, he's very literal. And so when I would say these 
illogical fear of mine, um, supposedly illogical fears of mine, he would come back with rational thinking. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, like this is, this is not helpful because, and now I understand you can't talk logical to illogical people, right? I mean, so uh, when he stopped fixing my problem and said, man, I see you. I'm so sorry that you're going through this. How can I be with you in this moment and not try to get out of it? I don't know how any mm. married couple doesn't hear that and feel some level of conviction because we do try to slap reason on top of emotion a lot. Like I can think of times where Lindley, I felt like you're being illogical. And so my job is to make sure you're seeing things straight and it never works. <laughs> I, she, she said that that's what's made her feel like it. I, there's still a long way to go there. So don't, yeah. don't know. I can, Definitely a number of times that I look back and go, oh, mm-hmm. I did it again. I'm, I'm, I'm fixing I, I'm it. I'm interested in hearing you guys talk right. about how others might be set free who are maybe tra- – they feel called to a traditional church, but they don't feel like it's safe to be themselves. Yeah. Or if we if people find out yeah. that we have this issue in our marriage, and then you live in hiding, which is really a horrible place to live in hiding. So what do you say mm-hmm. to couples now, as you've told your story, who are like – can you give me something that I could take steps toward health? Well, I would say, and both of us have shared it. We actually started um, feeling that safety outside of our church. And it was even outside of our church plant um, that we were creating a new culture. And it's almost like an evangelism strategy. Uh, I love a guaranteed Tuesday night. We're going to go knock on everybody's door. But the truth is where that really impacts our life is not if we're just doing it on Tuesday night when we're knocking on somebody's door, but if we can start sharing the gospel in every part of our life. So if we can get some practice of being vulnerable and real outside of the church, it makes it a whole lot easier to step back into the Mm -hmm. church and be vulnerable and real. And as we, particularly as pastors, set that stage it becomes easier for our people to do the same. Have you guys done any re- reading of Brennan Manning? Yes. <laughs> I oh was going to say, I when I listen, you guys are like modern day ragamuffin gospel people. And uh, mm. well, he just, because of his own battle with alcoholism, understood sinners in a way that right. other right. pastors and priests never right. uh, tried to or could. And so mm-hmm. I just, I just love what you guys are saying. I feel like there's going to be a lot of folks out there that realize they're pretending and they're lonely and they're scared yeah. and, uh, you know, we we have a loved one who's been through alcoholism, and I just think, you know, I've never thought about asking him if I could go sit in on his group and, like, see what that's like. I don't even know if that would be a good idea, but I'd be interested. Oh, man, I think it's a great idea. I mean, it was it was a life-changing idea for me to watch to watch people mm-hmm. be vulnerable. <laughs> it was like, oh, I We're supposed that. to be good at it. We're I, Christians. I preach. Yeah. I've preached that people need to do that, but I wasn't doing it, you know. So I, I, we know the principles, It's it, but watching it happen mm. is beautiful. Um, Candace Scott had mentioned in an email when we were communicating that you've had sort of an educational journey since this. So it's been, a, I had cancer mm. when I was 18 um, and was tried to do college for a couple of years. It got rather difficult just with the illness and we got married and one thing led to another and I wasn't able to finish my degree. Um And now I look back and go, okay, thank you, God, because this is like the time to do it. Um, 
I have had on my heart for a long time, ever since 2014, really. It's like this has been this being therapy, the tools, art therapy, trauma work, the gospel in really hard moments have revolutionized my way of living and that new foundation. And I thought this is too good to keep to myself. And so um, I prayed for uh, quite a while. I'm like, God, if you, if you open the doors, I would love to finish my degree. And um, he opened the perfect door and I'm getting a bachelor's in psychology with creative art therapy concentration. So the, the prayer for that is to go on and get my master's in trauma work therapy Afterwards, and mm. use art therapy as wow. a medium You'll be to do trauma work. That, That's awesome. Tell. Well, I I just think God has just done this incredible thing. I just look back and I go, okay, that was only Jesus. So she also mentioned the foundation. Can you? Can I ask a question now? Sure. Okay. Can you tell going back to that house um, just a couple years ago? Yeah. So I went after treatment after the. This is after the most extensive part of my treatment where I did intense trauma work. And really got to the bottom. Yeah, really, really dealt with the stuff that I was like, I'm not ready to go to that corner yet. Um, It's amazing. God just set me free in so many ways. But I decided I would go back down to that house that I had gone to the day before my uh, seizures. And so I drove my little self down to South Jackson again and actually, I was taking a girl home yeah. and a, a girl that had a, some similarities to my story. And I was taking her home and I realized, oh, my word, this is my neighborhood. And I thought, OK, God, this is it. I'm going to go look at that house again. So I drove up and it had been completely restored. A family was living in it. Mm. Um, it was beautiful. And I just sat there and I like sat in front of the house and I, in my mind's eye, you know, I just called that little girl mm-hmm. that lived in that house and said, come on, let's go. And Jesus has us. And that, that was just a pivotal moment for me wow. to see that God had brought enormous healing. That is powerful. I, I would sure speak, that, but I'm man, tearing up. <laughs> that is so powerful. <laughs> What are some things you wish that people in the church understood about mental health? Like how do we make this a conversation where people are equipped to have it? I want to say it's not a character issue mm-hmm. or a faith issue. I wish people understood that. Yeah. Um, and that medicine is a tool and a tool that God uses. Um, if I could say just openly like a microphone to the whole church world, I would say, hey, listen, those of you that don't struggle with mental illness, I know you know somebody who does. Um, the population is too large. And even if you don't, you can understand on some level feeling despair or hopelessness at some point in your life, I'm sure, if you're any kind of type of a normal human. And so to reach into that part of you and allow it be allow it to be a bridge to those that are suffering with mental illness. Mm-hmm. And also I'd like to say that, you know, I used to be very upset about the fact that I had bipolar disorder. And when I'm in the pit, I, I don't like it then either. Like I'm like, this is not worth it. Get rid of it. God, just take it away. And I feel certain that God has told me he's not going to take it away. Not in my situation. And so 
I believe it's actually become the biggest vessel that God has used to connect me and connect the gospel to people who are hurting. Um, whether that's in a group therapy situation where people do not have the hope of Jesus Christ or in our community where there's a profound brokenness. And so to the church world, I want to say, hey, listen, these are gifts and not curses. And if we allow God to do his work through them, we, I, I believe that we would be a much more approachable people to this world. It reminds me so much of the passage where Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. Right. Yes. How he begged God to take it away, but in order right. to keep him from becoming conceited, God gave him the gift of this pain. Right. It kept right. his kept his ministry grounded. When I hear you talk, Candace, I, I hear Jennifer Rothschild in your voice because blindness for her has been bipolar mm-hmm. for you. It's been something mm-hmm. that she never wanted, but God has used and I, I would encourage yes. you guys to get some time to listen to the episode we did with her because she talks about when she walked through this really dark depression that a doctor had to help her understand that the brain is an organ. Mm-hmm. And just like every other part of your body sometimes needs medicine, it's okay That's to right. accept the fact that you have a sick sick organ yep. that needs some help. Right. And so right. for all those out there who maybe are struggling with mental illness, afraid to say it because of their ministry, is there a place you would point them to get some help or a, a place that you might say, Here's some, a place you might look to get started in the journey. First, I would say find somebody safe that's close. Find a friend. Find somebody right there. Um, on the professional help, I will be very honest with you. That is a challenge. Um, yeah. and, but it, once you find the space, man, it, it is, it's been life-changing. Three Oaks for us um, here in Jackson was a godsend. Um, I watched her come back to life. Um mm-hmm as she was in that group therapy setting, um, there's a, a place in New Orleans. I'm drawing a blank on the place in Nashville. On site. On yeah. site. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've uh, heard great things about on site. Yeah, I went to a trauma intensive there, and it was, and it was powerful. I'm he- I've time. heard that recently. Someone recommended that. It sounds to me like find someone you trust and start asking around about reputable yeah. air, you know, ministries where you mm-hmm. could go and begin to start the journey of unpacking it. The Glass House is a production of Lifeway. It's produced and edited by Angie Elkins. Sound engineering by Dale Sandberg. Original music by Robert Elkins. Photography by Rebecca McVeigh. And artwork by Heather Berzinski. We are your hosts, Ben and Lindley Mandrell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>